Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and always I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode, we were going to be discussing a rather contentious topic. What's more important, observations or theory in astrophysics, I guess, in, in question, in, uh, in brackets there. So where do we start? How do we start attacking this rather controversial question that I think will probably split us into two camps before we've even started, if the script is anything to go by? Well, let's hear what those camps are, because, I mean, maybe our listeners don't know exactly which box we fit into. And, and, and you know, just to say, I mean, if, if you're in a conference or something, Observation, observationists, observers, and theorists are the two dominant camps. You know, that's that's how you would split the camp, the the, the conference in two, probably. So I'm an obs- observer. I don't do much theory at all. What about you guys? I'm going to have to say I'm fully on the uh, on the theory side of things. I have not observed uh, since probably at high school going to the South African large telescope out in you know the middle of uh, rural South Africa somewhere so I haven't I don't get that raw stuff you know I don't get that raw data my uh, my stuff is uh, rather removed from the actual <laughs> telescope and the instrument so much more on the theory side over here I am definitely an observer but I have dabbled if you ask a theorist they'll probably say that I'm I'm definitely an observer um yeah. but my cover letter says that I, I do a little bit of both I think I probably do sit in both camps though for very specific topics sure. uh, especially kind of the cloud stuff that I love to talk about on the show uh, I would definitely say that I sit in both sides of that. Oh, so maybe you know it gives us good coverage, right? A little bit. I think we are lacking some kind of solid current exoplanet theory side of things. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean from the from the you know planet you know non-habitability astrobiology side of things. Yeah, yeah, surely. <laughs> Especially, you know, given, well, we'll get into this, but my theory in particular might be a way down the line <laughs> when it comes to the disconnect between the observational capabilities and what we're doing on this side of, of the theory, uh, the theory coin. Yeah, so, I mean, we have both camps here, but let's maybe get into a little bit about the definition. So, obviously, observers take data, we observe, and often we turn that data into some physical properties. So in the case of exoplanets, we're revealing um, the physical size or the physical location of the exoplanets or something about what's in the atmosphere, which is usually a direct kind of physical link to the data we take. Whereas theorists tend to not start so closely with the data. They start more with the physical laws, the physical underlying assumptions that we make about the universe. And then they combine these in very kind of either computationally or analytically using just a, a pencil and paper and some, some mathematics and combine these into ways to basically run simulations in the lab or in, in on a computer in order to build up knowledge about a subject, about a planet, and, and ideally to predict some observable, observable difference um, that we can go along and, and discover in the future based on the difference between these these you know one or two um, hypotheses is that a reasonable definition I think I think so Hugh but one thing I was quite I was struck there was already as we're starting to discuss this there's a few uh, interesting value words that are, are sneaking and they're like <laughs> first or and then you know this implies uh, I guess where does the observer uh, the observer theory um, kind of feedback loop 
say, is it is it like collateral or is it hierarchical? Does one happen before the other? Do they happen at the same time? Unifying or, or hierarchical, you know? And I think already you're giving a little insight there into maybe how you think that the the arrangement works, which I think <laughs> is accurate, you know, and probably fairly good, especially in when we're specifically talking about exoplanet astrophysics. So I have seen a couple of phrasings of this question or of this divide that don't sit particularly well uh, with me, I think. And one particular one is that observations are just, in quotes, there to support theories. So without theoretical understanding, measurements are useless, is one way that that has been phrased. And I actually would often do argue the opposite of that, that yeah. Without the measurements, without the observations, what is the point of the theory? Yeah, I think you could you could you could go an extreme on both versions of that that statement if you want to be an extremist. I think that comes <laughs> to what you were saying. I think that comes to yeah. the point that actually these are tied together. They can't exist without each other, or they shouldn't really exist without each other. You should always be aiming to turn a theory into reality, right? Yeah. A theory is just a theory until an observation happens and shows that that is true or not true, right? An observation is just a data point with an uncertainty if you don't know what it is measuring or why. So I think that they go hand in hand with each other. I think it's just the question that we've got here is which one of those is more important? Yeah. Mm. And already, you know, that that shows that the question that you ask to start with might actually inform how you go about, you know, answering answering that question, investigating the problem, uh, you know, on the very meta level. <laughs> I guess we've already given it a certain value by saying which is better. We discussed this actually offline, right? We're like, how do we phrase this question that doesn't already put some some value into the question and how we how we go about answering it from a philosophy of science point of view anyway. I was trying to think of examples because obviously the way that theory is often phrased is is it's predicting things that we later observe. And I think that's quite it's not always like that. You can take data and make predictions with the data we already have. Or some theorists can make pre- like theories and never ever try to predict anything. Well, yes. <laughs> I believe I have actually said that, you know, about some of my models. Well, you know, if they're proven wrong, it'll probably be 40 years from now. So no one, no one will find out. Well, yeah. Well, I don't even know if it's just a time aspect. There's just like, oh, well, this is a theory, but there's absolutely no way you can prove it. And I'm like, what's the point in that? Mm, maybe another a, a tangential question. We should maybe think about some, uh, some of the cases that have happened in exoplanet history where there have been predictions um, by theorists which have become, you know, true, which have been verified or denied. Or and, you know, even beyond exoplanets, the most famous one I could think of was, of course, Peter Higgs, who predicted the existence of an extra boson that had yet been discovered and was found by the LHC in, in well, 10 years ago now. Or 20 years ago? I can't remember. 20, yeah. Goes quickly. For those who are just our lovely exoplanet scientists listening, that's particle physics. Uh, those are <laughs> fundamental particles that are in the universe. And the LHC is the Large Hadron Collider, which is across the Swiss-France border and has just started its third run, which is going to be interesting. Yeah. And there's a lot more predictions, I think. <laughs> there's find. a lot or, more or things would... that they're trying to find out, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Predictions being tested, observations being theorised about. With the exoplanets, I couldn't quite think of any such key, clear cases. Um, and, and 
like I mean the obvious one was the initial detection of exoplanets. Yeah, there I was, was going to say oh. actually <laughs> deferring to our exoplanet historian, you know, the detection of exoplanets themselves were predicted to occur at some point <laughs> once we yeah. had the the, the yes. technology and the correct observational, you know, kind of you know. But we didn't fortune. find them where we predicted to find them. That's that's the interesting sure. thing, is that the first exoplanets were, in many ways, unexpected. Although there was theory existing, it just wasn't in the mainstream, suggesting there could be these hot Jupiters, which were these you know gassy planets that were initially found very close to their stars. Um, another couple of predictions that have kind of come true that I, I, I could think of were, well, there was a theory that maybe we should find gas giants piled up around the snow line so at, at 10 au where you get a lot more material forming mm-hmm. uh, and actually that started to be the case we're starting to see that in the data uh, another one is that uh, hot jupiters which were you know had been found for 20 years at this point uh, were predicted to be de- tidally decaying because uh, of influence of the of the star and that's actually something we now have good evidence for for a handful of, of hot jupiters so uh, this is one of the cases. Um, do you have any other examples of predictions? Yeah, I think one other example is a is a good one that come came quite early in the in the theoretical prediction of what would be happening to these hot Jupiter atmospheres, and that was that they would be losing their atmospheres, so gas would be right. escaping from them, being blown off by the radiation from the star, um, and helium would be a key indicator of that. And that was predicted, you know, before we even got the first transiting planet where we might be able to make this measurement. And it took a really long time and a serendipitous measurement with an instrument that should not have been able to measure it and was not the best way to measure it uh, to find and show that helium is escaping from, from these planetary atmospheres. And that actually, that was using the Hubble Space Telescope with just one data point which showed that there was something happening here. It was at the perfect point for this helium triplet, which is so much better measured from the ground. And since that discovery with Hubble, which actually was only published in 2018, 20 years after the prediction was made, was followed up by tens of ground-based observations at high resolution resolving that helium escaping. And it's like, we had the technology to do this, but we didn't find it, even though the theory, this, there was solid theoretical grounding for this, the existence of this. And it just, it was kind of a revelation in some of that stuff. And it just baffles me that we, we were able to do this and we just didn't even try. Because again, like you said, we forgot. Yeah. We forgot this was something we should be looking for. That, that was what I was going to say is that, I, I mean, we've had Jess Bake on talking about that initial detection. You can go back to Exocast 25 to hear about that. Uh, and as far as I recall, she found this peak at 1080-ish yeah. angstroms. And she typed in 1083 nanometers or whatever into Google and saw that there was this prediction in exoplanet atmospheres. And that was how she realized that there was this theoretical base. It wasn't because... We had, you know, we had this knowledge and we were hunting for it. It was completely serendipitous. And I think there is this problem in that often, yeah, as you say, the, the theory doesn't get communicated to the observers. And so things go, <laughs> things get lost in time, basically. That's an interesting point. And I wonder, you know, I could think of, 
I, I had a few other examples here, maybe not as clear as that. They're more like responsive. I had, for example, the dimming, dimming of, of Betelgeuse, which um, wasn't a prediction necessarily, but there was an observation. And then the theory, the theorists you know, sprung into action to try and understand what could be producing this you know, secular dimming. Uh, equally, you know, Boyage and Star, there was this you know, predicted, how can we reproduce this curve that we're seeing of this, uh, this, this strange behavior? Is it an alien megastructure? You've picked two stars which don't have a good theoretical, <laughs> like, solved idea, right? So this is a, this is kind of one of the things. There are multiple theories for both of those things, as far as I'm aware. Exactly. And there is not yeah. agreement into which one is, is the true one because we don't have any further observations in some ways. And, and these yeah. are all really good examples of where observations drive our theoretical understanding of things. And I think that list is actually endless and it improves with instrumentation and I think that kind of comes into some other aspects we said at the beginning that we divide everything up into theory and observations which camp are you in but there are there are other kind of camps within astronomy certainly within physics that we really should be considering as well obviously there's other people who support science and I think that's that's key who are themselves scientists so there are you know, statisticians and data scientists and instrument scientists and engineers who are all doing science in order to help develop tools, uh, you know, be they theoretical models, which they don't, as you said before, maybe don't actually create a prediction, but create a model which can be used to predict things in the future or to create, um, you know, telescopes and, that we use for observations. And these people themselves aren't producing or, or, or solving hypotheses they are doing science, though. So there's a whole third third group here, I think, that we need to get, maybe not consider in this debate between observations and theory, but we need to give some airtime to. Well, least. no, I do think we need to, because all of those things that we just talked about happened with instruments that weren't designed to make those observations based on any theoretical predictions. They weren't designed based on this theoretical prediction to measure this thing. These measurements happened and then we worked out, oh, this actually matches with a theory that we had. Whereas we're seeing a lot more nowadays instruments being designed to answer specific theoretical questions. And I think it's a game of catch up. I think it's a which one's kind of leading the way? Are observations leading the way or is the theory leading the way? And how do we bring them back together? Because, again, it's a synergy. They work hand in hand. They have to be happening together so that we can learn more and develop more so do we need to build the instrumentation to prove that theory or do we need to develop our theories to prove those observations and i do think it's this this game of tag and instrumentation's core in that yeah i don't think it's a modern thing that um instrumentation is being developed specifically to theories i think that's always been the case i mean you could look at i think for exoplanets i think that is the case i think if we're talking about exoplanets we are right in the sweet spot where we are starting to develop instruments specifically for our case studies. And I think that happened with Coro and Kepler and things like that. But I think for more detailed observations, that's only just happening. Yeah. But obviously part of it is just let's build as a bigger photon bucket as we can. And there's no theory, theoretical you know, influence into that. It's just let's, let's build a big telescope and we'll see more things. And I do think that it's both sides, right? It's, it's led by theory in some in in the kind of instrument side, and in other ways, it's just led by. I don't know that you would ever ever get 
a proposal through saying we just want a bigger bucket, you have to have some theoretical grounding. You have to have some observations you're going after. And the beauty of it is that it's okay for you to expect to find new things. With JWST, we are expecting to be surprised and find new things, but it wasn't designed and it wasn't proposed for and it wasn't paid for based on the, oh, we'll see what we'll get. We build a big bucket and see what we get. I think that you need that solid, this is our goals. This is what we're looking for. Everything else is a bonus. But there's no, every single theoretical question can be answered by having higher signal-to-noise data, right? So I don't think there's a specific theory. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's a specific theory that dictated that we need to build a, a 6.5 meter mirror. That was that was dictated by the fact that everyone wanted more, wanted a bigger telescope. And so I think there are some cases where specific theories influence designs of instrument, but I don't think big telescopes can be can be ah, but you are you are putting a telescope right down to its mirror rather than its instruments which are actually no, no, no. the things uh, yeah, that make it up important. and those instruments took that size of mirror which was designed based on the fairing size the rocket size that yeah. could fit in and went okay what can i do with this and that's where you get the nuanced science questions coming in because without that those instruments wouldn't contain a coronagraph so that you can measure directly image planets that was designed in a very specific way to measure and test the theories that we have pushing to the limits that we've got you wouldn't end up with these multi-slit spectrographs. You wouldn't end up with this wide field camera that can go ultra deep and see the you know first stars that are forming in the universe. The instrumentation is built on the theories. The telescope, sure, there's big photon bucket, but the instrumentation comes and works based on that so that you can get the observations to support it. Yeah. It does raise a very interesting philosophical question in that... Does that mean that any data collected by those instruments is itself not necessarily raw data, right? Everything has already been processed through a pipeline. I only have very limited, you know, uh, experience with 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 you know uh, data pipelines and the like with Kepler. Shahani, you know better the journey of the photon, right? It's not really the the raw data we're seeing at the end of this. Even the observ- observers, right? You're seeing a very heavily processed, um, you know, pipelined, uh, calibrated. Uh, you know, noise removed signal at the end of this, which itself is already kind of imbued with theoretical, uh, you know, kind of uh, influences, I guess, is the only way to put it to to determine how to calibrate and how to remove bits uh, that we don't want. We know we don't want them because of the observations we've made. And then theory allows us to remove them from future observations, which gives us raw data. But is it really raw? I guess, <laughs> you know, we're getting down to the the, the philosophy of it now. Yes. It is. It, it is the true observation of the universe. Sure, there are uncertainties, but even theories have uncertainty. Of course, um, yeah. And we use all the information we have and knowledge of the instrument, the light path, the way that the photon interacts and creates electrons that we actually measure. And that process we can remove to the best of our ability and produce the pure what the universe is telling us from this one little light packet. And that is something that we then need to be and comparing to the theoretical. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the data that comes that we get from a telescope, even if it's reduced, that but basically means that the parts, the parts that, of the noise that we understand we've been able to remove. It doesn't mean that we're removing signal. The part where I think there is bias is when you have this data 
And then you have your pet model, which you enjoy and you, you like and you know, and you apply that model to the data, but you don't maybe look at other models, look at other ways you could explain the data because either we don't know or because you didn't read that literature or because you, you don't have the knowledge. And so you, you only play with the data in the way that you know. And that's where the bias comes in. Obviously, there are potentially ways that you um, do not understand where you could explain the data you know, some other way, but we don't explore that maybe. And I guess that's what it comes down to here is this, this search for kind of uh, objectivity uh, and you know, making sure that what we're looking at has had the influence of human subjectivity removed from it. And one of the best ways to do that, I guess, would be uh, an intercomparison with with uh, relevant, you know, similar data, right? And the best way to do that, I guess, would be to get similar data from different instruments to, you know, line up. And that's often what we do in exoplanet science, right? We don't, the, the information that we, uh, or the properties that we infer about a planet don't come from a single observation. They usually come from multiple uh, observations, specifically if we can get, you know, a, a mass and a radius to allow us to get a density with two independent, hopefully independent observations working together to to give us some sort of truth, some sort of objective truth that should hopefully be be free of any of those human uh, human influences, uh, I guess. Yeah, and I think that the work that Hugh does speaks directly to this, looking and following up single transit, single observation events to find these planets and then going, okay, well, how do I prove that it is a planet? And it's about going back and making repeated measurements of the same thing. With observations there's a huge rigor that has to come with that to go, actually, this observation is true. Yeah. Whereas with theory, you predict a hundred things and you hope one of them's right. So <laughs> digging through that is so much harder because from the observation side, and I was just about to say we, because that shows the bias that mm. we potentially <laughs> have here on Exocast, we are attempting to repeat our experiments. We are attempting to kind of go, we tried everything. We looked at all different possibilities and this is the result that we've got. What does it tell us? Whereas the theory is like, oh, well, I, I thought of this one and this one and this one and these 170,000 other ones. Which one do you think fits the best? So the questions, the way you approach them is very, very different. One of the problems I have with theory is that often it's very assumption dependent mm -hmm. so depending on what your assumptions are you can get out different answers and also i mean this happens with observations as well but the bolder your statement the more amazing the kind of prediction is the more likely it is to to spread and and you know be um be publicized well actually that's why i mentioned you know uh betelgeuse and voyage and star earlier when we were talking about examples because while the the, the helium escape mechanism wasn't really that well explored the moment that those things were discussed suddenly everyone was interested in in trying to theorize and, and test them so it had this kind of you know draw that i think uh, as hannah said why was no one really looking for that that um uh, that that helium line on the ground. Why did you know we end up finding it with Hubble? Whereas when it came to those kind of more exciting and out there and uh, and sensationalist, maybe that's not the right word, but sensational stories, they had much more of a draw that then attracted the theorists. And I guess therein lies a bit of an issue, right? Observations are, are somewhat 
um, kind of sensationally neutral, whereas, whereas theorists can be drawn towards those uh, those sensationalist. Actually, I want to stop using the word sensationalist, more sensational stories, right? To which we can apply a more exciting or or, uh, or exotic theory. Whereas yeah. the observ- observations kind of a step back from that, right? They're removed from from that potential funding bias or or attention bias, if you will. One example I, I know is the. Um you know, the case of WASP-12b. So observers basically found the planet properties and the planet wavelength, uh, radius as a function of wavelength. And then some theorists reported that it had a core made of pure diamond. Oh, I remember that. And this. I still see this everywhere yeah. Oh, yeah. on the internet. It's absolutely everywhere. It's in all planet. science communication books. And I'm just like, no. And it it is it, completely, as far as I can tell, based on a, on a very kind of questionable assumption <laughs> of planet formation and of, of lots of different facets of, of, um, of exoplanet um, interiors. So, I, I mean, no, I don't know many people who'd believe it at this point, but it still is out there because it was such a bold statement, which can happen with observations as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the bolder your, your detection... And the more you kind of sell it, then the more public publication you might get. Yeah, I, I certainly remember the, the period between 2012 and 2013, the number of Earth-like planets with <laughs> Earth-like climates that were being reported by the observational side of things was was, mm-hmm. was getting ridiculous at that stage. Uh, how are you calculating that specific temperature down to a, you know, a few Kelvin? <laughs> what, what assumptions are being made there? So yeah. you're right, it, 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 does go, it does go both way there. But does this not come back down again? Maybe I'm getting too much in the weeds here, but it's about the language that we're, we're using, whether to ar- ask the question or to discuss the results. Are we not somewhat limited by the fact that we've all been you know taught in a particular you know maybe western influenced university system that asks us or teaches us to ask questions in a specific way which then bounds our ability to maybe think differently about the phenomena that we're seeing maybe that's a bit too far down the line Um, but i think it, it does come down to language a little bit in terms of how we're asking the question but also how we're communicating the results to our peers and to other folks uh as well into terms of getting that theory out there and connecting the theory and the the observations as well. I think the the philosophers of science call it, you know, the uh, the phenomenalistic uh, approach, you know, is it should we be looking for a a language that allows us to express this more clearly is the language the issue or is our theories and our ability to build those theories around the observations the issue. So a kind of related thing that I see in in exoplanets is that the theory and in fields with um, without much data but with lots of excitement, the theory stretches way way beyond where the observation you know cutting edges. Yeah, I'm I'm arguably guilty of this, right? You know, my my papers are, are way out there in terms of yeah. what could actually be tested in the in the next few years compared to yours. That's for sure. But genuinely, yeah. I think that my stuff is is only just kind of hitting the point where the theory has been well ahead. And actually, now we're at the point where we can get those observations, thanks to the big photon bucket that is JWST. But we also fully expect that our measurements will send the theorists scrambling again. Again, it's this catch-up game. And I think the question that you're you're talking to, Hugh, is how far ahead is that catch-up game? And and Andrew, your stuff is what you said 40 years earlier. I would argue a bit more. <laughs> Offline. Yeah. I, uh, so, some, some of the theories yeah. being predicted right now, I don't think the predictors will be alive to see them, <laughs> to see them proven. 
Well, come on, Andrew's not that old. <laughs> Thank you, Hugh. Uh, no, I, I am the oldest, but it's fine. Uh, well, we have discussed the possibility, you know, that sometimes uh, an instrument will give you a result that you don't expect. And I'm still, you know, in the fact that I'm not an observer, I still have this hope that somewhere down the line, something will happen that will allow no, us to, despite the laws of physics. to make like <laughs> wild and ridiculous claims. Well, I, I, I'm more just so impressed by the fact that despite the limitations that my observer colleagues have to deal with, the impressive lengths that they can go to to extract the most amount of data out of their instruments is always extremely impressive to me. I use again the example of Kepler because that's you know kind of the one I know best. It broke a whole bunch of times and just kept fixing it, kept coming up with solutions to get it to do other stuff and found some really interesting stuff that wasn't wasn't predicted. So I'm not going to suggest that somehow we'll be able to somehow image you know a, an Earth-like planet atmosphere, but there might be uh, there might be ways to improve our uh, our characterization that we just don't know yet that might become clear once the data starts coming in. Is that fair? But I think that that can be said on the theoretical side as well, where people are going, actually, well, what if we looked at these two things and compared them to each other? What yeah. mechanisms can work behind that? And, you know, it's not just that we are testing and pushing the limits of the instrumentation, because that's what we love to do. Absolutely love to play around with and work out how we can get the most information out of these things from some of the strangest situations. But it it also comes from, and we're seeing it right now with all of the biosignatures side of things. And, you know, JWST wasn't designed to look for them. It is not something that we should expect from it. But people are coming up with theories going, well, what about this? What about this? Well, what about this? And I think that, again, it, it kind of, Every single thing that we've been talking about can be applied to both camps. That's why this is such a fruitful discussion and we probably won't, we won't solve it here. <laughs> oh, did we need to solve it? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's an Don't open-ended you know. question, uh, I guess. It's, uh, it, I, I, you know, I think it's a disingenuous question to say which one's more important. That suggests that there, there yeah. should be an answer. Indeed. Whereas, Indeed. actually, what about some kind of equality in yeah. that? Why are they both as important as each other? Better phrasing. Indeed. Why are they crucial to each <laughs> other? <laughs> okay, well, maybe we can phrase the question in a different way. If you had a big pile of money and you had to invest it into exoplanet research... What fraction should go to, you know, observers and what fraction should go to theorists? Well, I think that depends on what part of exoplanet research, because I think that is a really broad sweeping field now. It's not just let's find these things. It's also what are they like? Let's characterize them or well, actually, let's try and work out what we need to do in the future to find the answer to the ultimate question, is there life in the universe? So I think that there are multiple steps to that where each of them potentially have different answers to that question as to where you put the money. I agree with Hannah. So for you, Hugh, we, we sit in each of those questions, right? So for you, in the detections question, which one should get more money, theory or observation? Okay, so let's look at the example of JWST, which, okay, it wasn't a very expensive space telescope, mm -hmm. but it's going to advance our knowledge of exoplanet atmospheres by maybe 500% over what we currently have, maybe 1,000%. We're going to get 10 times more information about exoplanet atmospheres. Now, I don't think any theory could ever advance the field by more than a couple of percent in terms of its understanding mm -hmm. of exoplanet atmospheres. So I feel like 
you have to put more money into observers because that's where the field advances. That's where you push the limit of your of your observations and then theory can follow. I don't think putting money into theory early, especially in things like Earth-like planets, is actually a good place to invest when you sh- we should maybe be investing in in getting that that thousand percent increases in in observational power now you've made it so that i really don't want to argue with you because i want that money and i want (laughs) you know the observations that we've got coming down and i am super lucky to be part of a humongous number of them from both hubble and jwst but i need to play devil's advocate (laughs) for andrew and for a lot of other people i mean i was going to say that i'd probably agree <laughs> which I, I hate know, to say i i really really think that without the theoretical basis especially for such big questions like that we wouldn't have the decadal saying we need this telescope to go investigate that and this is how we're going to do it we wouldn't have okay well we need to look for these kinds of planets around these kinds of stars because that's the best opportunity to do this the numbers become so small of what we're able to observationally do at some point that we need to be specific. And the question of, is there a Earth-like world out there, is a specific question that requires humongous amounts of observational measurement, and therefore we need to be targeted. And I think this is the thing, when you have a targeted question a very specifically targeted question. You need targeted observations. And for targeted observations, you need planning. You need precision. You need to know the answer to your question before you've asked it. And the asking of the question is the observations, and knowing the answer is the theory. So we need to develop the theory for that prior to making those measurements so that we can make those measurements. We could serendipitously find it, sure, great, but that's going to take us longer. That's looking for a needle in a haystack instead of sorting out your blades of grass. But I mean, I I agree, but I feel like if you look at the missions which are being proposed in order, at that targeted question of finding life, finding Earth-like planets, Louvoir, Habex, they are using theory which was done in the 1960s. They are not using theory which we are investing in now so much. They're using, you know, Carl Sagan and, and the biosignatures work, which was initially developed a long time ago. Initially developed, but being refined day by day. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, And that refinement has taken advancements in computing so that you can do these computational measurements. Like, theory's not easy. It takes a lot of iterations, I suppose, is the best way to put it. You have to test things in lots of different ways. And a lot of the mathematics that is behind it... It's one of the reasons why I'm not so good at the theory and all the theorists would say I'm I'm an observer because I'm not so good at the math side of it. But the mathematics that's behind it is not necessarily a this has a single answer. A lot of the systems that we're talking about, if we think about atmospheres, they're chaotic systems. So they have multiple answers and they have probability distributions. They have a this might happen and it's likely to happen over 80% of the time, but you might be unlucky. And... I think that the advances in computation have really spurred on and helped with the theoretical understanding, which is underpinned, yes, by really old kind of ideas, but isn't everything we do underpinned by old ideas? The discovery of exoplanets was predicted in the 1600s. I just, if we need to throw out things because they're not brand new, then 
What are we doing? No, but I mean, the question is whether we invest now. I can't believe you're making me argue about against getting money right now. <laughs> I'm just keeping quiet here because honestly, I would say from a cost perspective, I often think of of theory as the best bang for your buck because it costs less to you know keep someone yes. like me going. Right, I can keep a you know small computer cluster going and a few simulations going for much much less than it would take to build a telescope that would be required to test those simulations. And actually, Hannah, thank you for bringing up the decadal because that's fresh in my mind. But also, I think that's a, a perfect example of uh, theory and observation in practice. Right, it's looking at what we've done in the past and trying to. Uh, predict or, or or at least guide the rest of the community for what needs to be done in the future, connecting the observations with the theory. So I was actually going to use the decadal document as a perfect example of the of the synergy between the two, and how as a theorist it, it helped me to to bound my expectations about what we might be finding and what we can do uh, in the next you know ten years or so, and then you know maybe limit my phase space as you said right, exploring those pr- probability distributions limit them to a more realistically feasible and attainable you know, set of, of parameters as opposed to just everything that's out there and getting right down to the smallest plans possible. So I hate to say it, but I'd probably, I would, from a money point of view, in terms of, you know, whether we're talking about importance or not, it's not important. I think money, we actually, is a benefit that we can, that we can cost less. I mean, it's still like lab equipment has cost, you know, a fortune. So, you know, this is not, not counting lab astrophysics, but I think on the whole, being cheaper is not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to the funders. Yeah. You're talking about upfront costs that yeah. then benefit for a huge amount of time. And, you know, people cost money. Exactly. Well, time costs money. People are time. Yeah, it's the same thing. There's some equation there. <laughs> um, but that upfront cost of putting together this instrument that can then answer a huge number of questions. And we're talking about instruments that aren't just answering a single question. They're answering a humongous range of questions across, in some cases, all of astrophysics and beyond like because years. a lot of this can look <laughs> down and yeah yeah so i think that there is some equivalency there and i think mm-hmm. that it really is important and certainly in some fields certainly in, in my field of characterization we need the money for the observations like the observations are key right now there are so many theoretical predictions we have absolutely no idea we're going to measure them <laughs> and find out and that's where i was trying to kind of go with this is that it depends on the question it depends on what stage that particular field is at and in my field we're at the point where the observations are king queen ruler of all (laughs) (laughs) but i i think still in the more distant kind of future questions where we can't answer those right now with our observations then it is a theoretical kind of balance point and again it comes to this cat and mouse game of of chasing and catching up and overtaking and working together and okay well what now i i think it it really does speak to the hand in hand nature of things and unfortunately that means that we do come in waves we do come in okay well this needs to be funded now and this needs to be funded and then this one and then this one yeah i don't think it's a if or or it's like an ecosystem right you can't like even the, the predators and the prey, you need both. You can't you just have both. one. 
Oh, who's the prey in right. this one? I, was <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying say. to think. What? <laughs> the right data. now, the data I think, no, prey. no, no, the theory. No, I was going to say the theory's the prey. Certainly, okay, you guys are chasing it with your observations. No, oh, I, basically, we've I got... I disagree. Right, exactly, I think it's the other round. We've got, the, we've got these theoretical predictions for what the atmosphere should be like and what should be happening dynamically in the atmosphere that should then imprint on the measurements we're making. And we are attacking that with our measurements genuinely going uh, but yeah. really well you made a lot of assumptions there did you make enough or did you make too many there's a lot of sheep to choose from but the predator will take the only one which is uh, you know <laughs> we're stretching the specifier i guess um, yeah definitely because we basically the observations go well this one needs to be true or this suite of things needs to be true this kind of uh, probability in this multi-dimensional phase space needs to be true, but that means I'm going to rule out all of these other things you came up with. So we're definitely winning. Well, maybe we could, we could look at this slightly from a different uh, kind of like career personal development side of things. Like what kind of scientists might be more interested in going down the observer route and what kind of scientists might be more interested in going down the, the theory route? And I guess we have a good... Mathematician? Oh, no. Right, that's what I was... We've already touched on it. Like maybe, which is surprising for me because, you know, I wouldn't say I'm that... Um, my math my math is that strong but you know maybe i'm not at the you know particle physics level of math I, i've got enough to get by well i i don't want to say mathematics as a whole because there's differences in mathematics Indeed. again and we've already talked about that i think hugh you can agree or disagree that we're statisticians really we have to be really good at statistics that is a kind of maths whether i like it or not it's a kind of maths <laughs> yeah. I, think, and, I think we could argue that Right. So I think there's very different kinds of mathematics, but physics is underpinned by the language of mathematics. And that's something that, you know, we try to talk about in the undergraduate recruitment. It's like, you're going to have to do some maths, everybody. You're going to have to. Um, so start practicing and get used to it. And I hated maths. I absolutely hated it. And I'm not, I don't consider myself fantastic at it, but I can apply it. And the beauty of physics and the one thing that I kind of go to the people that are like, oh, well, I really don't like maths. I'm like, yeah, but do you like logic and understanding? Because it's just helping to underpin that. And I think that it's an applied science, yeah. physics, astronomy, especially so. It is an applied science to the biggest and smallest things in the entire universe. Um, and absolutely everything in between. So we kind of all speak the same language, but from different angles yeah. again. There we go. Coming back to the maybe a similar issue. Would it be would it be fair to say that obviously on the observation side you're more you know spacecraft adjacent, right? You're much more likely to be part of a you know a spacecraft development or instrument development team. Whereas on the theory side, you're probably a little bit more detached from from that that process. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. So if you're a person who wants to get involved in you know designing instruments and being on that side of things, obviously down the observ observational side of, of, of it is probably where you're going to focus, which might imbue us a certain sampling bias in the first place. I right? think there's also just a character thing. You know, people people have different characters. People, you know, either which enjoy exploration and discovery and, and, you know, seeing what's out there. And some people enjoy yeah, thing, playing right? in a box. It's the and, new objects. It's yeah, the new phenomenon. and like seeing what they can yeah. build given some conditions. I think that, you know, that maybe it's the people who play Lego versus the people who play 
outdoors or something like that. Maybe that's the division that that ends up being <laughs> our uh, metaphors theorists are versus observers. Being stretched. So, um, <laughs> we're going to have some theorists who are coming back going uh, I go outside thank you very much to play with Lego I'm playing <laughs> with Lego <laughs> inside to try and reproduce what people outside are doing you know on their own I, you know okay this metaphor is, is beyond, this it's beyond the limit it. now, I think. building a predator out <laughs> of Lego no hold on. <laughs> <laughs> it does come back to the same thing you know the question we ask and how we ask it I think is going to you know affect the, the way that it's answered I guess would be the, the summary from my part. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we were ever going to say this one's better than this one. <laughs> Observations. Wait, no, sorry, what? <laughs> well, before we even got onto the uh, into the virtual studio today, I was I was looking at the conversation taking place, uh, kind of on the on the script that we all have access to, and the the conversation was already you know getting pretty heated. And Hannah maybe has been slightly won over to to the theoretician side after the conversation. Would you think that's fair? I certainly came in fully supporting my observational colleagues and wanting to give you you guys all the money you need. Um, but just don't forget, don't forget about us over here. Cheap and efficient theoreticians just need a computer. You and a are laptop. not efficient. You come up with a <laughs> hundred things and one of them is right. That is not efficient. How do you think that's efficient? Yeah. But it was so cheap to come up with those 100 things, Hannah, that it didn't cost anything. Per theory, it might be about even. Yeah, yeah per theory, cheap, you know, pennies. <laughs> pennies per theory. Absolute <laughs> lie. I will, no, you've, you've won me back to the observation side again. Absolute liar right there. Observations are the best. Well, just because I said it was efficient. Okay, uh, you know, cheap and inefficient theoreticians. Yeah, there you go. That okay? That's, that's right. That's Is that better? There okay. we go, that's better. That's a much more accurate <laughs> Because, you know, I'm, I'm sure that all your observational campaigns are incredibly optimised and 100% efficient. Right. That's not our fault. <laughs> I guess they have to be. At least on paper. On paper they have to be, right? It actually really depends. Like, in, in terms of the scientific understanding you want to get out of it, yes, they do need to be efficient, but sometimes your telescope doesn't work like that and to make the observation that you need uh you end up with a lot of dead time uh i suppose is the best phrase that is more translatable because sometimes the telescope isn't good enough to do what you need to do now could the same not be said for theory sometimes the theory just isn't good enough and you end up with a load of dead time thinking about what on earth these observations mean yeah, but we're actually getting measurements from it. <laughs> you not. Oh, wow, I've really won Hannah back. I was trying to keep you on the theory side of <laughs> oh, things. Well, but you completely ruined it. <laughs> I know, I really we're, we are measuring actually what's happening. You are pretending to know what it is. I'm still not entirely convinced that the data is as uh, raw and unbiased as you would no. as you as you think, think it you're is. Probably um, it's both. It's 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 never it's never one or the other. Right? I love mm. this. I started like completely balanced in between loving <laughs> both things andrew was like no observations are are like our king our queen our em- and, and we're fl- we're he was just like theory is absolute trash and now he's like well theory's really good and andrew's like in the middle and i'm like no observations are the one thing that we need why have we it's, we're, we're going not- around in circles because we're open-minded open-minded scientists who can be convinced by you know convincing arguments from our no he was right we're going around in circles yeah. I think it's because there are good yes. points on all sides here, right? Let's let's be honest. We <laughs> yeah. we need each other, uh, whether we admit it or not. Like a, a weird little little family of that's right dysfunctional family of sorts. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> we all need to rely on each other to to answer these incredibly cool questions that we're we can all very take turns. Who's being to... the predator and who's being the prey? <laughs> it's a symbiosis of sorts. Such an astrobiologist word. <laughs> well, I think this could be maybe 
one of our most divisive episodes, and I'd be interested to hear <laughs> what our listeners feel uh, feel like we've <laughs> given both sides a good coverage there, or whether we've been biased towards observations, which I think we might have been. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, we'd certainly like to hear from you know listeners if they are on you know in one of these camps or straddling straddling both of them, and what their experiences uh, of being observer or being a theoretician or being a little bit of both uh, is, is like, and whether you know our, our yeah. experiences are representative maybe this is just us uh, and other people have had very different different feelings about about how how science gets done okay i think we'll call it a day there but we do have another episode out this month although we are delaying recording a little bit because uh, jdub is going to be releasing some of its first data including exoplanetary spectrum so we will be talking about that uh, in our next episode of when we cover the news squealing with excitement likely <laughs> you can go to exocast.org to find all of our previous shows and you can follow us on twitter at exo underscore cast and tell us exactly how much you hated or loved our discussion today or which parts you prefer and if you want to help support the show you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast each coffee is, is four bucks and, and uh, any donation over 15 bucks uh, will get you a shout out on the show and thanks so much to all of our previous donors you can also get your hands on some nice exocast merchandise t-shirts stickers and more at exocast.threadless.com exocast is edited by fergus hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts thanks again so much for listening and we will see you next time bye 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 exocast you have been listening to exocast the Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK, Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.